0: you're listening to live from city lights a podcast of readings and archives from city lights books and publishers to learn more visit www.citylights.com
1: buddy i'm peter welcome to city lights uh welcome to the poetry room after many many moons we are back again hello to all of you online as always, uh, at the beginning of all these things, I want to take a moment to acknowledge those who have come before us as stewards of the land. We are on Ramatish Ohlone ancestral homeland. Let's think about that for a moment and uh, consider that uh, we thrive and we benefit from the fruits of the place that others were developing before we ever even got here. So. Uh, with that said, always a pleasure to have John Freeman with us in the house. Uh, we have been friends for many, many years. City Lights has been following his work. And of course, whenever there's a new issue of Freeman's, we always get very, very excited. Uh, bittersweet this time because this one is called Conclusions. Um, I think John exemplifies the literary life. What can I say? I mean, besides being an editor, a curator, uh, you know, having been a, like a huge kind of champion of literature and writers he's also a really amazing poet and if you haven't read his work i suggest you really go out and get some of his poetry we've got it here at city lights so um this new and final conclusions is published by grove press uh we are happy to have with us some of the contributors tonight uh and also we have a surprise for you um let's see so I want to talk a little bit about some of the issues, you know, we have most of the issues up here, I believe, um, and over the years, we've had issues that have been called love, some that have been called animals or change, and of course, California. So, uh, each issue explores some wonderful subject uh, in very interesting ways, and uh, and this is something that we here at City Lights absolutely love and adore, and... uh, So John is the founder of, of course, Besides Freeman's. Also, he was the uh, editor at Granta and has also uh, produced 10 books of his own. These include Dictionary of the Undoing. Uh, As I mentioned, uh, he's got his own poetry, The Park. Also, Tales of Two Planets, amongst many others. Together with Tracy K. Smith. He edited There's a Revolution Outside My Love. His writing has appeared in the New Yorker, the Paris Review, Orion, uh, and it's been translated in over 20 languages. Uh, Currently, he's the executive editor at Alfred A. Knopf, and he teaches writing at NYU, makes his home in Manhattan. Uh, Joining tonight is this amazing all-star cast. We have Jaime Cortez, who is a writer, visual artist. His fiction and essays and drawings have appeared in a diverse array of publications, including Kindergarten, Experimental Writing for Children, Uh, which was edited also by uh, Danatine Lomax. Uh, Also, No Straight Lines, a 40-year compendium, of LGBT comics. Uh, He's also contributed to Infinite Cities, uh, Atlas, that was edited by Rebecca Solnit. They are with us tonight as well. He is also the author of the fabulous, fabulous book, Gordo. Please check it out if you haven't. Another book we're really kind of thrilled and very excited about here at City Lights. Uh, We also are really honored to have Elaine Castillo, if I'm pronouncing it correctly. Uh, Her debut novel, America is Not the Heart, was named the best book of the year by NPR, San Francisco Chronicle, and Kirkus Reviews, uh, amongst others. uh, And has been nominated for the Center for Fiction Prize, uh, also the Aspen Words Prize and NCIBA Book Award. Uh, Her essay collection, How to Read Now, is chosen as the september pick for roxanne gay's audacious book club and also joining her whoop, get out of the way there our friend oscar from Zizova, another great champion of literature uh his work has been uh in the believer and freeman's and vqr and alta amongst other publications uh, uh, Oscar was also editor of the San Francisco Chronicles Literary Review for many years. He's been on the board of NCIBA, or I'm sorry, on the uh, National Book Critics Circle, I should say. Uh, also, he's been a longtime juror at California Book Awards. And then, of course, our special guest, Tommy Orange. With many of you need a little introduction. Uh, he, of course, many of you know him for his fiction. He has a new novel coming out in 2024, and it is called Wandering Stars. Uh, But did you know he was also an amazing poet? Are you going to read any poetry tonight, man? Oh, please. Please. You're in the poetry room. Come on. Hey, give these folks a warm welcome.
2: Peter, uh, thank you for uh, having us. Thank you, everyone, for coming online. And thank you everyone for coming here. Um, this is always such a special room. It's a beautiful, almost uh secularly holy space. Um, things are possible here that seem like they're not possible elsewhere. And um, it's just such a privilege to be here with um these writers that I admire and, and love so much, whose work has made my days so much brighter and and more interesting. And I um and I think we're here in, in some ways to hopefully talk our way towards. I guess a conversation about conclusions, Um, it's the theme of the new issue, but I think it's something on our minds, you know, obviously, the end times didn't recently begin they they have been happening for a long time for many peoples. Um, But it does feel like we're in the middle of a a narrative breakdown um, that we don't have the stories to tell to understand the way we live and what we face. And so we need to come up with better stories. And that is also, that's not just a, a narrative issue, it's a civic issue. And in some ways it's a book selling issue. Um, and I feel like City Lights has been at the front of, of presenting new stories as they appear. And the writers that are here with me have been have been doing that. But I, I, I wanna start um, with Elaine, because you've come the furthest today, all the way from San Jose, um, standing at five foot two, uh, playing no number one guard. Um, five three. Five, five <laughs> three. <laughs> One of the things that I found that has happened in the last couple of years, as as we face these forms of of um, collective narrative breakdown, it, there there is a return to older stories. You know where we fit in the in the biosphere, for example and you could call it we want we we like pets and fluffy things we like dogs and cute things but i feel like there has been a rediscovery through animals of of perhaps trying to figure out where we fit in the world and i know that that's been a big part of your last couple years and I, i i wonder if you can talk about not your experience with dogs although you can definitely do that but what it means to tell stories about animals versus the stories that you were telling and how to read, or stories about stories, and, you know, the the stories you had in your first novel.
3: Yeah, well, you want me to talk about dogs? We'll be here all night. So, I mean, this, first of all, thank you, John. I mean, I think all of us, especially all of us here on this panel have a very, all have our stories to tell about our first encounter with Freemans or how we got into Freemans or our first encounter with you. And those are emotional stories in and of themselves. So it's a real honor. And joy to be here to celebrate you and celebrate this last issue. Uh, yesterday was the anniversary of the passing of my first dog, uh, the, a senior German Shepherd, Zina, Tattoo of um, that I adopted when she was nine, and obviously, I've been thinking about conclusions since then because her death broke me, and I I didn't tour How to Read Now I think because of well, because of that and because of you know a lot of life happened in my life after that. And in that loss, I ended up writing not the novel I was supposed to turn in, but an essay, which is now I think turning into a long form or has turned into a long form essay, which actually is turning into a book about her and about dog rescue and about dog training. And I think one of the things that I really experience, because I wasn't someone who grew up with dogs, you know, I grew up in a kind of working class immigrant family. So the, the experiences I had or thought I had with dogs were, you know, people in the Philippines who kept a dog on a chain outside a rural household for protection, that kind of experience. And I hadn't had the experience of living with a canine companion or a canine soulmate or having that relationship. And I know one of the things that I really felt when I had that relationship was that I felt, oh, I felt more fully in my personhood because I was part of this tradition of living alongside an animal. And I, you know, I loved Star Trek all my life, so i ta- i I'd, I'd, I'd been in love with this idea of like interspecies connection. If only I had known at seven, I should have just gotten a dog. And I think, you know, in in writing about her, and because she was a German Shepherd, and because people have all sorts of ideas about german shepherds and about how to train german shepherds and the kind of aversive training and sort of kind of carceral history of german shepherds that i felt like became my responsibility to be commensurate to when i you know fell in love with her you know i started thinking about her and 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 her history and what it meant and then that led me to i was really glad that in this in conclusions you started talking about barry lopez because i've been reading that's all i've been reading not barry lopez but i've just been reading naturalist i've been reading the has anyone read the yellowstone series on wolves by rick mcintyre he's a yellowstone park ranger i really recommend it if you just want to ugly cry about wolves which is i mean i was probably already in a state to ugly cry at uh wolves but there's there's one story that really stuck with me and i think the reason i was attracted to it is because the kind of way people train german shepherds and by people i mainly mean cis men is really based uh, is often based on what has been long debunked as these kind of alpha dominance hierarchies which is to say like you know you have to like dominate your dog unless they don't respect you and it's really you know wrapped up in like Obviously, really sort of imperial ideas about power and carceral ideas about power and domination and and discipline, and also obviously specific ideas about masculinity that are all coming from really completely uh, misappropriated ideas about wolf dynamics because people think, oh, well, wolves live in a kind of like alpha dominant hierarchy way, which is not, you know, the like naturalist who, unfortunately, who's, whose work later came to influence like alpha dominance, David Mech. He later recanted a lot of that research because he was studying wolves in captivity, so. And the wolf story, I know I'm going on and on about wolves, but bear with me. There's a wolf story that I was thinking about. The, the most famous Yellowstone wolf is a wolf called Wolf 21, who was a real example of, so you would say, Alpha male uh, in that uh, in that context because he was someone who was really he was a he was a someone yeah he was a he was a being who's really known for giving away power you know he was really, he would he would lose all the time with his pups he was generous he was a provider but the thing that Rick McIntyre says is that the, he distinguished himself because he never lost a fight he never he never lost a fight with a rival wolf but he also never killed a vanquished rival a defeated rival so he never killed another wolf and there was one wolf in particular wolf 302 who's this real fucking casanova who was and who was the opposite of wolf 21 who was like getting his daughters pregnant leaving them running away from fights stealing food from pups like oh there's a battle here by like just the you know not the paragon of leadership or virtue or anything and at some point, 302 is, you know, fucking around with 21's daughters. He's this guy. And finally, after, you know, some time of this, 21's like, okay, I'm just gonna beat this guy up. And of course, all of 21's pack mates are like, okay, we're in, let's, I mean, we're loyal to you, so whatever you wanna do. So they're starting to beat 302 up. And then they step back. And then the other members of 21's pack are like, well, what, what do you wanna, what do you wanna do, my guy? are we gonna, are we gonna go? Go through with this and then he walks away. And 302 sees this chance and as he's prone to do, runs away. He's like, here's is my chance. Bye. You know, it's like a very wily coyote. And Rick is like, you know, what does mercy mean in dogs? What is that? or not in dogs, in wolves. Like, what, what what does that look like? Why would he have done that? Why would Wolf 21 have done that? And he says, the answer to that, bringing this back down to conclusions, is he only finds that out years later when 302. Long after Wolf 21 has passed, long after Wolf 21's mate has passed, Wolf 302 is now an old man. And he's kind of slowly started to redeem himself. He now finds himself at the head of a pack. And he's now starting to provide. And at the end of his life, the rangers find him, he's been killed. He's been killed by rival wolves. And when they do the autopsy, they see that his belly's full of elk meat. And there's all of these wolf cub prints around him. So Rick McIntyre's idea is, or his, his thesis is that he died protecting these young cub wolves, which is not something that he would have done in his youth. And a lot of the the youth, the, the cubs in that, in 302's pack were grandchildren of 21. So Rick's idea is that mercy, that the person who's your enemy today can be a vehicle for your legacy years from now. So the idea of you know what we think about what what survives what's the future what comes out of conclusions mercy is one of them mercy is is, is a way to think about the future
2: now you can see why it's so amazing to talk to elaine can't it's like, about dogs, John. no like one question you have a whole essay that's just pouring out of you and i i think one of the things that you could just watch unfold as you as elaine is speaking is 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 really brilliant writers they don't just reframe um the 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 answer they the, in that reframing they find whole new possibilities for telling new stories and it's like paradise built in hell you know it is is it is it not that actually when things get hard we rely on mutual aid and that all the stories about sort of social darwinism say a lot more about the structures we live under than it does about us and one of the reasons i wanted conclusions to be the title, rather than endings or the conclusion, is you can come to multiple conclusions. You know, mercy might be one of the conclusions out of that story, um, but love is another con- uh, conclusion. And what the way that we we have to possibly reframe how we love, um, in in times of scarcity, and what that means, and who we love, you know. And I, Oscar, I you know I was I wanted to ask you a question about this because. Mm. in the in the the context of conclusions you had a a really beautiful story about your family Mm. that is also a story about about love um and it and how it travels over distances that are almost impossible but it's also a ghost story which at its fundamental level is a story in which there is no there is no conclusion you know there's always a there's always a a, if if a if there's a ghost there's a haunting which means that there's never an ending Uh, you know um there's only a place where you have to stop,
0: um, right? But in terms of like, you know, uh, some sort of finality, there's really never any sort of finality, um, you know. For So for example, with a ghost story, you know, um, is is this some sort of a uh, sign or, or I should say, um, evidence that, you know, there's life after death? No, I don't think so. But certainly what it is, it tells you that things, even when they're gone, are never fully gone. Um, they echo this is history. This is everything. You know, the thing about you know, the, the only real finality really truly for everything is you die. And then that's it. But of course, uh, unless this is my understanding, unless you're a sociopath, you uh, believe the world goes on. You know, sociopaths don't. It's, that's a fun fact. They uh a lot of them. When they die like, oh, I die. You all die with me. That's it. The world's done. Um, this is why you don't want them to be president. Uh, so exactly but anyway uh yeah so yes that's that that is a a, a physical uh, uh uh imposition right so it's over but nothing really is over you know and i think this is the whole thing look you know um uh what conclusion i think sometimes suggests is the idea of knowing everything there is to know about something so we are concluded and that's that and i turned in the warren commission report you know that's it that's uh, more uh, JFK, anyway. So, uh, yeah, you, know, you turn it in, you know, that's a Case closed, nothing, there, nothing more uh, to that. But the fact of the matter, that's not how life works, it's not how anything works. You know, you we try to make sense of things as much as we can. Um, we uh, create narratives to try to make sense of things as much as they can, as we can, and that this all leads to, I say, in quotes, something. Well, maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. And I think with a ghost story. Um, it's uh, ghost stories uh make it clear that you subconsciously don't believe that you really don't believe that, and this is you know for so for the piece uh uh that uh, John ran in Freeman's, and thank you very much uh for doing that. Um, it was it's it was partly an exploration too of the mystery of family lore, which is to say, um, unless you have the benefit of a new yorker fact-checking crew you're never gonna know anything really about what happened before you showed up you know i mean maybe you could you could dedicate your entire life to it but at some point you will want to you know pay the rent so you know it's not it's not going to happen so i think the vast majority of us live in that sort of mystery you're just not going to know the full story it is it's not going to happen so there's never finality there's never, there's, you know, there's nothing ever concludes, and in, in this sense, these ghost stories are sort of the reminder that you're, you you know, we have to live in this sort of state of accepting. I'm not going to know everything, right? I'm only going to know what, you know, scraps I have. I can conjecture, I can, you know, theorize. I can do these sort of things, and um, for better or for worse, that that's as good as as it's going to get for you. You know, um, you know, I mentioned the the New Yorker fact-checking thing, and one of the things I find extremely annoying is this idea uh, sometimes in, in, in some, not all, but sometimes with some personal essays and sort of stuff that, you know, if I just accrue all the facts, we'll get to something. You know, this will, you know, this will tell the story. Well, it'll tell a story, but it's not going to tell the story. Which is why we have this wonderful thing called fiction. Um, you know, uh, th- there's too many variables. There's t- there's too many things um, that will you know that, that we just won't get to. Uh, but anyway, uh, uh, yes. So that you know that was um, you know part of my thinking and writing this sort of stuff because I really think, and I'm sure for all of you too, everyone out there, you know, uh, you're just never going to really know all the stuff you wanted to know and but life goes on so and here we are you know driving around in our pickup truck and getting uh cheeseburgers at mcdonald's on a saturday night that's how that's how we get to the bottom of something
2: yeah but it's hard to um it's hard to attack easy pleasures when when so 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 much pleasure. oh I've, i'm
0: not attacking that's that's a Hey, you know, one time you could get a uh, cheeseburgers for fifty cents. You remember this? Yeah, that's the the that deal going in the in the. My guy was of the nineties. Yeah, McDonald's. You get cheeseburgers for fifty cents. See, Tommy's nodding, and it was uh, hamburgers for a quarter. Oh my goodness, with twenty dollars, mm. and you know, with the with the metabolism of not middle aged, that was that was a good time.
2: Tommy I, I'm curious if um you've been writing poems lately as well as this new novel that's coming out in March um and you know th- some of the poems I've read are are absolutely brilliant and lovely in addition to the ones that I got to publish and there's there was one you wrote about shooting baskets with your dad and the it, it reminded me of the poem that ran in one of the other issues of freemans where the the, the, the repetition of words it was like you were sort of dribbling An experience to see what happened when you kept tapping it to see what vibrated what like what it actually would mean if you sort of jostled it enough and i'm i'm curious what that does to you when you're in the middle of writing a novel where you kind of know a little bit that you're in a big field a big imaginative field and you will have to get to a conclusion and in the middle of it you do these sort of 30 minute you know i i know it took you longer to write the poems but you do these Linguistic exercises, if you will, I felt like reading them, what was so pleasurable, it felt like you were just playing, but it felt felt like there was something else happening there, and I wonder if you ever speculated about what it was.
4: Um, Well, I think. The only reason I've written as many poems as I have, which is not very many is because of John Freeman. his belief in them and Kaveh. There's two reasons, sorry. Um, I I met Kaveh at uh, Purdue and we started a, a friendship that um, resulted in him writing a novel and and me writing a lot of bad poems. Um, and uh, thankfully, John has liked some of them and, and I think some of them are not that bad. Um, I think poetry, I felt so uh, that, that I didn't, I couldn't belong to it. And that the poets that I had read were like purposefully, uh, obtusely writing in a way that wanted to keep someone like me out. And i never took a poetry class and I didn't have anybody to sort of be like, no, these poems will get you in. Um, because I think it's all about accessing the right poems for you because uh, poetry is huge, and I didn't know that. I was like, oh, poetry is this thing where people don't know exactly what they want to say and they and they're doubling down on that. <laughs> and I like like narrative prose is like, OK, I want to like say what I want to say. Um, so finding my way into narrative prose and, and, and narrative poetry um, through Kava and, and Ocean Vuong was was a big discovery at the same time as Kavi. Um, I think, you know, I've always wanted my favorite poets to write novels. That's like when I realized that some poets do that, I'm like, oh, I don't want all poets to write novels instead of what they're working on. <laughs> um, but there's a place for poetry that's different and, and can do something much different. and and. It's something, and and I write novels initially from from the interior. And I think poetry is mining the the interior in ways that novels, your editor won't want you to. You you have to put the bodies into the world and have them do stuff Mm -hmm. and have them want something and like have something happen. And poetry doesn't require that. And I think the interiority piece, once I realized I was allowed in, I was like, oh, I okay. We can like uh, play, and and we can do things with language that um, that the novel won't, or the editor of the novel won't allow, um, or won't want. Um, and even in revision, sometimes I won't want to stop for too long to really like think about a memory and the echo of the memory and real time as it relates to, you know, some drive I took to Oklahoma in in 1987. Describing some ways. So it's been, it's, it's been a pretty like recent and new journey into poetry, both reading and writing. And, and honestly, John uh, has has been a huge factor in, in that even happening at all.
2: It's really fun to encourage someone to do something that they're beautiful at doing, you know. It's it's not it's it, it's sort of like blowing on a fire. You know, you're not the fire; <laughs> you're the thing blowing on it. Um, and, you know, as Tommy was talking, I was thinking, you know, if faith is is like, is based, on a supposition that has no support, you know, the supposition you have to accept at face value. I, I feel like writing in its most fundamental level does have that radical structure but there's a supposition at the heart of it that's that uh, you have to actually just listen to and that to me is is in its most primal form in poetry because you don't it's not an idea it's a sound it's a sound it's like a it's a repetition and it's a movement and I, I think one of the things that has really moved me in the course of working with all of you is how you all have your own really unique sounds. You know, you can hear it when Elaine speaks, you can hear the looping structure of Oscar, you can hear the kind of sobriety and intimacy in in Tommy's voice. And and when Jaime talks, you'll hear it as well, the way that he, you know, expands to confront a kind of supposition and issue, you know, right? And the piece that uh, I got to run of that you well, I've run two in Freeman's, but one of them, it sort of comes at very directly the the problem of telling a story in this time. You're sort of t- telling a story and and when it feels like the world is falling apart. And I, when 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 you start speaking, that will become very clear. But I, I wonder if at what point did you feel okay writing in that voice? Because I think it's such a gift to be able to to talk about the need for a story as you're telling a story you know um that um piece that you're referring to i, I think it's
5: it's so much about um uh, how sometimes these really really important revelations come layered and very quietly to us like they just kind of pile on and you and you realize 10 minutes later like shit i just had three ideas that are going to shake me for the next 10 years, right? Um, and I, I think that that's something that was interesting to me and how in some ways, when that happens, when you have the revelatory uh, kind of moments that pile on like that, um, uh, for that to begin, something has to end, like your former mindset uh, needs to be burned at that at that pyre. Uh, and so that was kind of a, an interesting one for me to be pondering what uh, was how these revelations come to us and sometimes it's the thunderbolt thing and other times it's something much more subtle uh and uh and so that was kind of
2: exciting and interesting for me um
5: did I answer your question? I don't know if I answered your question
2: yeah beautifully um and I would like you to read from this piece briefly in a second but in in the meantime, you know we have amongst us here already a, a lot of people who've been involved in Freeman's, um, H.R. Smith, sitting right over there, Shoba, beautiful fiction writer. Uh, I'm so happy to be able to publish your short story. Um, Ingrid, you're the one who got away. I, I, it's, <laughs> but as Oscars and all of us are talking, so much of your memoir comes becomes extremely relevant to a discussion like this, is how do you come to conclusions in a world which doesn't always totally understand uh, the capacities that you have for knowing. Um, and you know sitting right here is is your um friend, coach, um writing pimp, um, the person who introduced me to you um as a as a writer, Re- Rebecca Solnit. and i I wonder if you can t- talk about what that layering process is like when you have someone um, not an editor like myself, but someone who's a sort of fellow writer who's saying, You have to do this. This is what you're doing right here. When, when you have your own conclusions pointed out to you, do they do they feel the same, or does it just feel like you're being beaten with a stick to finish your piece?
5: Why not both? <laughs>
2: um,
5: no, I, I think that um you know it's an interesting question this this one of 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 the kind of external voice and that kind of external support and validation and what that means um there's um, plenty of ways that people can receive validation. That's message. Uh, But then there's the other question of messenger, like whose voice uh, like really feels impactful with that. And I I think that's something that's an interesting thing for me to ponder when I think about what it means when we're trying to support each other. There's the message piece and there's the messenger piece. Um, And um, so I think that really comes up for me when I think about Rebecca, who was tremendously supportive of me. Uh, first, to just uh, imagine that I actually had a book—like I didn't realize I had a book. I thought I had a bunch of short stories, and I and I didn't understand that that was the shape of a book. Um, so, just even something as fundamental as that is, can be really powerful and uh, and and helpful uh, when you have that validation. I am I'm very suspicious of confidence. Uh, and most of the time I think confidence ain't shit, um, and it's just because I don't see any kind of strong connection between confidence and competence. If I saw that frequently, I would say, oh yeah, confidence is the shit, that's really great, uh, but mostly it's completely hit or miss, and I think in American culture, we think of confidence as this kind of performance-enhancing drug, like if you just shoot up enough of that shit, you're going to be fucking awesome, dude, you know, that kind of thing. That that thing. And I think it's I think there's something deeply American about that kind of our take on confidence. And so I am very suspicious of confidence. Uh, but I also know that when when the right kind of circumstances and the right people come to lend you some of that confidence, it's really magic and it's quite beautiful. So I'll leave it at that.
2: <laughs> yeah, if we could. I know I I know actually uh... Jaime told me he has uh, shin guards on right now. Just thinking. <laughs> um, while well, while you pick out that piece, I want to swing back to all of you because we're sitting in this room. My parents used to drop me off here in 1984, and I would just sit in here and and pick up random books. And I have no idea how you know which books I took home, but it made a huge impact on me. It was like being in a you know psychopharmacology of the mind and the best possible way and It was an intervention you know in a in a in a not planned way it was just like this place is like a babysitter and it's free go go sit there but i i wonder if all of you have had that that kind of moment you know as jaime was talking about revelations which which are a form of conclusions uh, have arrived at you Have, have can you remember when it when it's come you know in the form of a book where you thought this this is there's a before and after there's this book and 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 then, after that, i i'm I'm a different person.
4: Uh, I don't know if i can I can say that there's a particular book, but when I realized I loved fiction, this was, you know, a headquarters for me. To, to just be in here. I, you know, I, at the time I couldn't really afford to buy any books. Um, but there's a curation that happens in a place like this that wouldn't happen at a library. Like you just go to a library and you sort of want to know what you're looking for. Um, but there's, what bookstores do is they introduce you to things that you would never see anywhere else. There's, it's like tastemakers are making, you know, books visible that you wouldn't know otherwise. And that's what I always loved about a, a place like this. And so I would spend, you know, eight hours here and not buy anything, I'm sorry. Um,
1: yeah.
4: um, but just read and like figure out what what books do I want and like really have to decide on like a couple and figure out which ones I'll eventually get. Um, and so realizing that a place like this exists as a bookstore when I was first becoming a reader, which was late, you know, I was in my mid-twenties, um, realizing that this was a resource was a revelation.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think I came to City Lights a lot and didn't always mind either in the mid-2000s. I think for me, I I mean, like Tommy's saying, I think bookstores and libraries, they were, they were huge in my life, even as a kid. And I was reading, voraciously and yet despite that i don't think i ever realized that that was a it was so much part of myself that i never thought about it so i never thought oh i'm gonna be, i was writing all the time and i was reading all the time but i never thought oh i'm a reader i'm a writer also because i was sort of i was the only one in my family who it was just me and my dad who were readers so there was always this sense that reading and this literary life and this sort of intellectual life is one that has to be kept secret from the kind of otherwise sort of like not especially literate and not especially Mm, welcoming to uh, literacy, sort of wider community. And I think for the longest time, it was just something I did, but not something I was. And then I think it was in the fifth or sixth grade or something, one of my friends, because I think people still knew that they, they didn't know I was a writer, but they're like, oh, she's kind of good at like essays and stuff. Just like plagiarized what wanted to see one of my essays and then i was like okay yeah sure you can like look at it and maybe it'll help you whatever and just like fully plagiarized it and i think i was 11 or something and i was pissed like actually furious and i know my my friend he was like i don't know it's the big like first of all we're 11 chill and and i think that was the first and it was also like an encounter between this private world that i had in that moment realized meant the world to me with the kind of my larger community and the world and that feeling of oh no this is important to me it's important enough to me that hooking up (laughs) that kind of energy so i think that there was a before and after with that experience i think after that i thought oh i think this isn't just like my left arm this is this is something that i think i am
0: yeah um I, i i My first visit to City Lights, I think it was 1989. Um, I was with a, a group of high school friends. Uh, I was at uh, San Diego State at the time, and uh, we're like, oh, you know, let's get the hell out of Southern California. So um, we were like, oh, let's transfer, let's get, you know. Uh, one wanted to go to, uh, um, it was in community college, it was looking to go to Cal, and another uh, was at um, UCSD, and it was his car, so he had to come. And then uh, it was me, and I was just same as Dale. Like I don't want to be here. But anyway, um, we did a little tour of, of of California in a in a Honda, and um, we stopped in San Francisco around New Year's Eve, actually. And um, we took a, the Bart from a Motel Six in Richmond, and uh, you know came into the city, and uh, we wound up, you know, here. And by by here, I mean I made them come here. Um, because I was one of those people, you know, walked by a bookstore, like oh my god, we're screwed. Oscar just saw a bookstore. We're there for two hours, so you know, I mean, and it was phenomenal. You know, it just it, you know, it just blew my mind. Like my god, it's like some sort of cathedral that you know I've never you know been to, but you know, but for me, it's interesting. You're saying like, like, um, when did the penny drop? You know, in terms of your your first book, I think like probably everybody here, you know, you were had an affinity for reading know, when you were a little kid. You know, just read whatever you could get your hands on, that that type of thing. And I know I read lots of wonderful things in middle school that I really adored. For some reason, I really liked uh, uh John Steinbeck's retelling of um of of, of um, King Arthur, you guys yeah, it, it, yeah, it's uh I was 13, you know, what are you gonna do? But um but the one that actually the penny dropped where where it was hallucinatory, where it was just phenomenal. It, it, and it was Stephen King's skeleton crew. I don't know if you guys ever read that. Uh, that is, wow, that's good. That's just a collection of his short stories. It's phenomenal. I read that when I was 15. I swear to God, it was tripping. It was just, sucked me in. It was just, you know, the thing about Stephen King, God bless him, he doesn't get a lot of credit for, is that, um, like, like if you got if you got kids, or if you're a kid yourself, uh, you know, and someone said, hey, you know, um, you, know, you should read this YA or this whatever. You should. That's fine. Well, I'm telling you, Stephen King, for a teenager, you want to know a little bit something about the world? Boom, it's there. And that's what he did with Skeleton Crew. I mean, also messed me up. This is a horror. This is, this is some trippy stuff in here. But that's the first time when I thought, wait a minute, how did that happen? You know? And then after that, then I got into the hard stuff. Yeah, by the time you're 19, like uh, I went into a Crown Books and Rancho into and uh, grabbed the Stranger from Camus. It was a new trans, the Vintage International one, and I got uh, the paperback of in the Time of Cholera and uh, the that one you know edition of the uh, of Ulysses, you know the one I'm talking about. Yeah, and uh, the guy you know brought it up to the registry. He sort of like goes, "Oh, you are going for the good stuff, huh?" Like I have no idea. This just looks cool, um, but it was that. It was it was really then, and I remember. I don't know if you guys ever read that essay from Italo Calvino. Well, the so many essays, but he has an essay where in, in part he's describing about writing and, and technique and the sort of stuff. But he just kind of as an aside uh, says, "How is it possible?" And I'm paraphrasing. You know, I don't have great, like these like scraggly little spider legs could have so much power. Like, how is it possible that you know this thing? This this is how is this not magical? Could be that transporting, could have that effect on. You. It's just, it's just these these spider legs on white. That's all they are, and then you know, and and, you know, and here we are. But yes, uh, uh yeah, that was you know, you, I think for anyone who's a reader, um, there's something about this place that instantly you feel um uh, at home or in a sort of idealized place. Yeah, you know, like if Burgess Meredith at the end of that Twilight Zone. If he had not been in the bank vault. And you'd been here, Yeah, you he would have figured it out. You know, it like, yeah. the glasses, whatever. We would have figured it out. Because look at this. My God. You know, stupid bing vault. This is a lovely place.
2: We've sort of been talking about conclusions as a as a as a moment as a moment, too, that you can kind of have a conclusion about what you like, and that conclusion changes what you are. And once you realize what you are, you are in are a different free radical as a person in the world. It's not just you, you write stories or a novel or, you know, Stephen King knockoffs until you become the book editor of the San Francisco Chronicle. You, you, you create stories and you retell stories that also change civic space. You know, I, I think America's not the heart has absolutely changed civic space because it's, it's told stories that in some ways we're being told already, but we're never put into a novel in the form that you put it into. And it's a revelatory novel. And I think the same is true of, of your of your first novel, and I'm sure it's gonna be true of the second one. And I, I wonder if we can just think about not trying to scale revelations up to civic usefulness, because I think that's a way in, in which a conclusion can then stop you from writing, because you you begin to try to write towards usefulness as opposed to enjoyment enchantment storytelling the the following a character but is 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 there a moment Jaime like in your life as a writer where you became something different and you noticed as a result you began to do different things and that it was related to what you had were becoming as a writer and I ask you that particularly because you've done lots of different things in your career um, in public health and, and, and whatnot. I think, um,
5: I think that when I began to write about the things that shamed me, um, something shifted, and it, it kind of gave me a kind of ownership over that part of my life, that part of my heart. Uh, and it helped me to just adopt a kind of an openness about Yeah, that stuff happened. Yeah. Uh, and I think I think it had something to do with that, and that's just my own kind of personal psychology that I needed to get at this 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 core of shame. So that that was something that was really a big uh, shift for me, uh, and how I kind of moved in the world and how I engage with people.
2: Did it affect how you write? Because if you haven't read Gordo, there's something overwhelmingly lucid about the stories that it feels like you were transported into the body of a child that you you're not watching a child think you are a child trying to buy a donut off the back of a truck, you know. Um, And I, I wonder if if your way of creating stories was changed by that revelation as in when you make things so clear, it doesn't leave a lot of room for shame. If you put things like happiness and and childhood and play next to things that children eventually could be shamed by.
5: Yeah, I think there's um there's an interesting thing for me about trying to write with with a lot of immediacy uh, for these child characters. Um, I worked very, very hard on getting that voice down, but I worked just as hard on trying to get that kid mindset down and trying to remember what it was to be a kid and to try to make meaning of this confounding world that surrounded me and the confounding behavior of adults and other kids. Um, so I think that there was definitely a, a lot of that what was had to do with that kind of wanting to get a certain immediacy and trying to get back to that uh, to that mindset um, was for me a really important part of the process. Um,
2: I'm going to ask one more question, and then you obviously can ask questions of Tommy, and Elaine, and Oscar, and Jaime. Um, but, you know, the the voice that you use in the, in the piece I'd like you to read just a tiny bit from is different, a little bit different. It's your adult voice, it's the sort of um, synthesizing voice, you know, it's, it's a voice that can ask intimate, personal questions, as well as civic questions, and make observations, as well as sort of describe a, a, the experience of experience and i guess i i i wonder if you're ever tempted to follow that voice as well and if you did where it might take you i really um
5: you know like working in that adult voice as much as i like working in a kid voice um what feels really uh magical to me about that what the adult voice brings is the possibility of connecting dots uh, that might not be obvious uh, at the at the outset, uh, and so again, that piece of the revelation that can happen with an adult mind churning over something uh, and making these connections of things that might have initially seemed completely disparate and disconnected, um, or maybe even absurd to juxtapose them, uh, but but how they can all sit together,
3: yeah.
2: Have a little...
5: Sure. Uh, this is a, a piece that actually came out of a, a Facebook posting I had done in 2018 when the giant paradise fires were raging uh, in, here in Northern California. Um, so I'll just stand just to be able to check a little better. Um, do I need to use the mic for the for the virtual audience? Okay, got it. All right. <clears throat> Fire notes. My evening commute takes me north on Highway 280 towards San Francisco. 150 miles to the east, paradise is burning at the heart of the largest wildfires in California's long and storied history of fires. The thick smoke, which blankets the entire region for hundreds of miles, contains the particulate remains of paradise. It occurs to me that in unison, millions of us are inhaling the sofas and ottomans of paradise, the cars and gas stations of it, the trees and lawns, the clothes and detergent, the wedding pictures and divorce papers, the cadavers. This thought comforts and discomforts me as I drive through the evening traffic. I need to use the bathroom, so I pull over at the Crystal Springs highway rest area. The rest stop used to be notoriously cruising, cruisy, drawing gay and temporarily gay men from around the region with the promise of nocturnal sex in the bathroom stalls, in the cars or in the trail that winds up the scrubby adjacent hillside. Increased surveillance of the rest stop and finally a mini police station planted near the bathrooms put an end to the nightlife. The now chased rest stop is packed. Its parking lot is sizable with room for 30 or 40 cars, but every parking spot is occupied. I find a patch of roadside and improvise a parking spot. I walk to the bathroom and there's not one person in there. Hmm, the whole rest stop is jammed full of cars, but no one is using the bathrooms. But it's a rest stop, I think. It's all about bathrooms, isn't it? Evidently not. On my way out, I see through the open door that no one seems to be using the women's bathroom either. I walk back to my car slowly, and I notice now that one car after another is packed to bursting with stuff. There are pickups with their beds stacked high with blankets, bicycles, boxes, chairs, Beverly Hillbilly style. My nosiness is peaked. I slow my walk to a near shuffle and assess each car. I see a woman in an old civic bundled up bundled up in the fully reclined passenger seat she is turning about in her blankets trying to find a comfortable position to settle in for the night she sees me looking fixedly and I feel a wave of shame rise and break in my chest i've been busted being morbidly nosy i witness this act of settling in this act that is normally so intimate to be seen only by the eyes of your kin or your lover. Next door in a little red pickup with a rusted hood and bumper, I see someone's hands adjusting a metallic folding windshield sunscreen for privacy. The overhead LED lights shine through the windshield reflecting off the silver screen and the hands seem those of a deft puppeteer in a sad surreal cabaret. I see a bearded man with a steaming paper cup of something sitting on his car hood and talking with a second man in the passenger seat of the neighboring car. I eavesdrop. Their chatter is a bit of nothing about the brisk weather, the smoke. Backlit by the lights from the rest stop of the map kiosk, their words exit their warm bodies and become delicate, delicate vapor genies that dissipate into the darkness. Shit, I finally understand. This parking lot is either a long time encampment for car dwelling folk or an ad hoc way station for refugees from the epic fires engulfing paradise and the neighboring areas of Butte County, or both. I stand there for a moment and take in a big breath of smoke tinged air and I'm stunned by how deeply dystopian this scene is, the dirty twilight air, the car people battered by inequity priced out of proper shelter The people who gazed into the burning eye of climate change and fled for their lives. We did not ask for this, but we chose this. Through through our action and inaction, we chose those fires, that smoke, this displacement. We're all paying for it, though these people are paying more dearly than the rest of us. Of course, I'm complicit in this, just like everyone else. Of course, I can do better, of course, of course. I feel a dull, leaden weight on my shoulders. I turn my face towards the hillside. The gate to the uphill trail is locked for the night, but I mentally vault over it and take the short hike up to the Vista Point where a hulking statue of the 18th century Franciscan monk, Junipero Serra, awaits. Serra is bowed down on one knee, but the statue of the colonial missionary is still of heroic scale, perhaps 20 or more feet high. His right arm is raised, his forefinger is pointed towards a polluted sunset of such lurid and awful beauty that gazing upon it gives me the dread of a marooned astronaut emerging from his smoking capsule, pondering the heavy descent of the first unknowable night.
2: one conclusion you should get from that is don't give your work away for free because that was on Facebook most of it (laughs) and Rebecca Solnit again um sort of was helicoptered to the rescue and said um you should look at Jaime's post that should that should be in Freeman's and I said absolutely it should but you know obviously one other conclusion that comes out of that is um a voice can recreate the space that it exists in you know um Facebook could be a terrible place often. It's an annoying place. I left it happily. But when, you know, you had a cone of light like that voice, observing with that kind of um, somberness and attention to what is real, uh, it becomes a better place. And I I guess I want to end by saying, or asking you you all, because writers are not necessarily joiners, you know? Gathering them in a room can be tricky. Um, They—it's not like their cats will fight, but um, but it, but you know you spend a lot of time indoors and you end up reading seventeen books about wolves and um, and and so and and institutions are not always kind to writers either, you know, especially really good ones. They can they can make you do they can stop you from doing the thing that you you're meant to be doing. So I, I'm curious what it was and this is not a cudgel for praise but what experience within group settings did each of you had that made you think maybe being part of a magazine like this where you are made to go and talk about what you did where it's not just writing a piece but engaging in a conversation like this where it's three-dimensional what what made you okay with that what made you what, what was the experience prior that Made it possible for you to conceive that might be okay, because Elaine's first experience, her book was not even out. And I was like, "Oh, why don't you come to this event?" And I forgot to mention there was six hundred people at the event. <laughs> and Elaine's like, "Okay, I'm going to read the long Lingus section um, okay. to start off with." Yeah, and sh- and I would say like you earned five hundred eighty eight fans that night. Everyone just walked in and said, "Who in the hell is that writer?" And I thought, okay, that person is meant to be writing and be on stage. But back to the other question.
3: I mean, I, that's that was that night was gonna be, I was like, you didn't, it's not a cudgel for a phrase, but what other answer am I gonna give you, John? I hadn't done an event until that. I mean, this is also one of the reasons I'm, I'm maintaining my friendship with John because he has read the like first thousand page draft of my first novel. So this is a real long, I'm waiting for that Men in Black device to come out so I can just wipe his memory. And until that happens, we just have to stay cool with each other. <laughs> yeah it was that night. I mean, I think you had my UK ed because I was living in London at the time, my UK editor had like given you. I mean, I also had to use the device on James, but he'd given you that, and then you were like, Yeah, come out to New York. <laughs> Me and my partner were like, Okay. Uh, and I think that was the first reading. It was the first time I'd been on stage, it was the first time I because I didn't go to, I mean, I had at that point I'd done in like an MA in England, but I, I think the the spirit of that is very different from an MFA in the US. So I felt very outside of like the American literary kind of community establishment sort of uh, structure. And then you kind of ruined me, John, because that it was a great night. And then every other event after that had <laughs> to live up to it. And it, it really didn't. And, and I mean, increasingly, I feel like the only events I do are Freeman's events. So you're gonna have to come up with another journal. <laughs>
4: um not to I guess be a cudgel of praise at you John um but I think I've done a lot of events um and I've done a lot of bad events um let's just say that like I was part of what was bad you know the first like six months of going out on tour there there it was very sweaty including an event here it was hot and I was very nervous and um and just reading nervously, like not really knowing what, you know, not ever wanting to do the thing of speaking for the book. Like it's a private thing that you do for other people to experience privately. Like that's, that's what's supposed to happen. Um, Sort of like go out and do events. It's not, uh, I haven't loved it. Um, But you, and, and speaking of curation, talking about bookstores, like, Seeing who you include in your books, in this journal, this legendary journal that's coming to an end tragically, um, and you and your warmth and your brilliance and you know your big mind, um, I always knew whenever I was doing an event with you that it was going to be a great thing because of you, and and so I I haven't had a lot of great. Experiences of like doing public things. There's been, you know, ten percent has, has been like, I didn't feel bad when it was over. <laughs> um, and then there's been a lot of, not great ones, because I don't love doing the public speaking thing. But, but what you've created with the journal, and uh, and with who you are, the space that you with the the events, and I haven't that many, um, is you know, it's really credit to you, not to be a cudgel of praise.
2: Well, I, I always wanted our events. We had a great one with Rebecca and Jaime and Tommy. um, There's a couple other people there at that event, but it, you know, I don't want our events to just simply be a a kind of performative recreation of what you did. I want us to have a conversation that where you end up saying something that you, you you might be arriving at a new idea as you're saying it. And that's totally dependent on a combination of people. you know, and, and you were on stage with Dina and and Garnett Cadigan. Uh, and I, I always love the idea that, that the, these faces are really elastic in who they can put together. And so instead of saying, like, here are two people in their 30s with novels out, it's be like, here's a range of writers who actually have a lot in common, but in a really deep and and, and underground way, um, rather than up forward. And I just, I'm really grateful to all of you for being willing to take that risk, because it's it, it's one thing to come up and be like, I wrote this novel in my basement, and, and I finished it, and I gave it to Rex Solnit, and she finished it for me, you know, um, but it's another thing to come out and, and and be in this conversation where we're not quite clear where it's going, but sort of tacking our way towards some some conclusions about conclusions, or whatever it is we're talking about, and one of the reasons I always feel comfortable with you, Oscar, is I've had so many offstage conversations actually with all of you where I think if you were on stage while that was happening, you would have a cult, you know? And, yeah. and I feel like one of the things that I, that this, the goal of of Freeman's events was, was to try to have offstage conversations on stage, you know, not to have a panel uh, if, if you will, but to try to move towards the way you are when you're not self-conscious or you're not thinking about, you're just basically telling a story to communicate and you're one of the best sort of oral storytellers i know you know yeah you you can't tell from tonight but yes that's
0: true i um i save my best stuff for garbage time cuz <clears throat> i play play loose i having fun it's over you could you know do, say whatever. here's the thing you yeah, know i think um you know why do you all do what you do you you do what you do because it in, in for so, it, it in some measure brings you happiness it brings you joy Right, it, it's fulfilling in some sort of way, and um, so when you're in front of other people, yeah, I mean, this is you know, it's not church, you know, you can, um, it's 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 good to have someone like you, John, that uh, gets it across that you know we're just here to just to be with each other, to talk, to maybe figure some things out, most likely not, but yeah, you know, we're gonna give it our best shot, this type of thing, and it's that sort of warmth. I think that is part of why we even bother to do the work that we do, or even why we read, you know, it's that sense of wanting connection a community, you know, this sort of thing. Um, uh, you know, we should uh, feel like these sort of things are more like a hangout, you know, more of just, you know, kind of getting to know each other a little bit better in this sort of way, you know, we're not, it's not a junket, right. It's not entertainment tonight. It's not any of that stuff right? It's just a, you know, it's really, it, I think it's a beautiful act of intimacy. Uh, oh, that came out wrong. But you know, what I mean, uh, not that kind. Uh, well, I don't know what I, I wasn't thinking of that at all. So, um, you know, but but your personality, John brings that. I, my God, I knew you when you were in the Cub Scouts, or something like that. You know, I've, I've known John for a very, very long time. And he's always been this way. He actually even looks the same. It's a little it's a little disturbing, but he does. Um, but you know, it's 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 um it's that openness. And I think when people feel around someone who's open and warm, they respond in kind, right? If if you're around people who you think, oh, I'm happy you're here, you know, you you react to that, you know, and that and my goodness, I mean that's I mean that you certainly done that with Freemans. I mean, that's a thank you so much for inviting me to that party. It was it's been absolutely lovely.
2: Well, it's been lovely having you all here. I know maybe I know we've gone on a little bit longer than typical. Um, so I I understand some of you have stopped sweating and run out of water in your bodies, but it's lovely to be in a cozy place because it's it's actually quite cold out. Does Does anybody have a question for Tommy or Elaine or Yes?
0: oh yeah yeah for biography sure yeah but you know for my family lord no <laughs> you know um and i'll just put in the plug boy robert Caro's, um lbj <laughs> that's some beautiful writing that's that's some that's some wonderful stuff um yeah
3: better be a, an opportunity for an opening. Otherwise, it's the end, my guy. <laughs> I mean, and how often does it happen? I mean, how we've been here hour, hours, so it's happened about 100 times since then. I think getting comfortable with that failure. I mean, you were Jaime was talking about the being suspicious of confidence. Confidence doesn't serve you as a writer. Vulnerability serves you as a writer and vulnerability is ultimately going to lead you to failure. I just failed for a month. A novel I'm working on. I just failed by writing a book about dogs instead of writing a novel. So, fall. I mean, what your instructor told you about writing the work that you have to write and not worrying about representation—that's the correct advice. Oh, you're sorry I didn't even get that. See, I just failed again. <laughs> it happens all the time. So, getting comfortable with that, making friends with that, and then in a way being grateful to every time that happens is—I'm not saying that I. I mean, I, I'm also a perfectionist Virgo, so I don't like it that much.
2: But it's an ongoing
3: process to be comfortable with that, that experience of failure and understand that it's, it's ultimately probably your greatest teacher.
4: Yeah, I think also, you know, I, I finished my next novel, the second one's really, really hard, full of failure the whole time. Um, And I think, in some ways, concluding a novel is admitting to failure. Like this is the best I could do in this time period and with who I am and what I was capable of and given all my limitations, this is what, and this is where I have to stop. And that's a kind of failure because novels are, you know, novels can do a lot and, and they ask a lot of you and you're never gonna do enough. So I think the process of writing a novel is, should be full of failures, failures and also end with the failure. That is the end of you writing it.
3: One thing to that, which is actually advice. This is something I used to tell students, like whenever you're in a draft and you're at that point where you're like, just one more draft and I got it, just one more draft and it's perfect. That's the, that's the place to stop because then you're going to start spiraling. You're going to start You're then you're reaching for some sort of vague idea, abstract idea of perfection that's never coming. So that end with the the failure and right before you think, oh, if I just do one more thing, it'll be perfect. By that point, you're already spinning your wheels.
0: I was just gonna say very briefly that, you know, I was working newspapers forever. And, um, you know, within the confines of 24 hours, wherever you have the shift to write a story, you got to write a story. You know, you got five hours, that's it, man, you know, crank it out. And, um, as you know, you know, some of the 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 vets there would tell you, well, you know, they can't all be Pulitzer's. So it's it's not even so much as failure, because we see failure, but what it is, it's, it's, it's an at bat. Right? And you have good at bats, not so great at bats. You up there again, you know? That's you're building towards something. It's not a failure, you know, um, unless you're batting like you know 100. But that's different, you know. You're it's you know not to belabor this, but you know Giannis Antetokounmpo had a wonderful retort about this um, when you know they when the Bucks didn't make it you know to the finals, and uh, the sports writer asked him, he was like, "Well, would you say your season's a failure?" He's like, "What?" Like it's not the season's a failure. It, these are steps towards getting something. It takes a while, because like he tells the guy, so "You're saying like all the years previous that the Bucks did not win, uh, the championship were all failures?" Like no, it's, it's it's the journey, it's the process to getting to wherever you got to get to. Some good season, some bad season doesn't matter. You just no failures. There are no failures.
5: Wow, that's just. Such an amazing amount of wisdom that we just had dropped on us. I, I wanna take all of your writing classes. It's fantastic. Um, I just wanna hold out the idea of, of failure as a style. And <laughs> can you fail pretty? <laughs> you know, just to, just to imagine like, you know, what if what if you just kind of have a, a more playful relationship to it? I, I work on this myself, so I'm not teaching from like some um, Place of, of having resolved this, but it's something I wonder about sometimes. It's like failure as an aesthetic, failure as a sensibility, uh, failure as a style, um, and uh, I'm not even sure what that means entirely yet. But I, but I, I think there's something about it that gives relief. Um, so I'll just leave with that thought.
2: Last question? Yeah. Oh right, I realized that. My name is Armando.
1: Um, I'd like to ask, uh, where, how was, what is your process for trusting yourself while you're writing? Before you get to, I know this is a very big question, uh, but I, I, I'm just fresh in an MFA, and it's, uh, I'm placing myself at the page, and I'm finding myself kind of questioning a lot of like my choices, and where do you, how, what is your process for coming to a point where you trust yourself in what you've written?
4: Um, I think you, because I, I, I don't ever feel confident um, or like I'm trust falling into my own writing. Um, I think you have to find the right times, like figure out the times that that the writing can come because getting it out is so important in order to get to revision. And sometimes getting stalled before you get it out is... A really big hurdle and so figuring out your best times do you need coffee do you need a ritual do you need it to be you know at 11 p.m or you know 1 a.m when you think everybody's asleep and that does some magic to your brain where you're like this is an open space where nobody else has consciousness right now whatever weird thing that gets you to commit to get the initial writing out that's the closest you're going to come in my experience to trusting And that's just like letting your fingers do the thing that's happening with your thinking plus fingers equals writing. It's a weird thing. And we all think that it's there's a magical like, you know, I'm in control of what I'm going to say and now I'm saying and I'm inspired and that's not how it's really messy and it's really weird. And I think just finding the right times to do it because revision, I think you don't need to feel the same feelings for revision. You can really come at revision with logic and reason and craft and there's a lot of tools, but the initial getting out of stuff and the the allowing to trust that something is worthy of coming out of you, you have to find your, just find your times.
5: I think the thing that's really helpful for me is um... When, when I've written something uh, and I look at it and I just feel, that feels true. It's, it's it's really that kind of simple and that complex to just ask yourself, does that feel true? Um, and that helps. And if it's humor, does it make me laugh? Do I make myself laugh? Um, that's, also, that's also helpful.
2: Thank you for your question. Um, I think we should probably uh, come to a conclusion here. You've been a wonderful, very patient and um, attentive group, and um, you you all have been fantastic. And there's a risk in talking because sometimes you can kind of get out in front of what you do in a way that makes it hard to keep doing what you do. If you start talking about it too much, in a way, it forms a encrustates a, 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 a self consciousness. And one the thing, the 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 radical openness that Tommy and Elaine and you know, Oscar's talking about newspapering, but this this man writes beautiful sentences. You know when he's off deadline, um, yeah, <laughs> garbage time. He's um, but really, uh, one day he will write one of the great memoirs of all time. Um, and already, I think the group of you have published books that will be with us for a very long time. And that's that's the only conclusion I I come away from with this. So. If you're here and you haven't read one of these writers, pick up their books. They're all here. If you want to sample some of it, it's in Freemans, there's a bunch of other books that are pretty good. Um, Thank you, Peter, for having us, and thank you all for coming. It's been really lovely. Thanks for listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast from City Lights
0: bookstore and publishers. Our theme music was provided by Axolotl, all City Lights events are free. To see upcoming events at City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, check out www.citylights.com events.